0: like to enjoy my, my my neighborhood parks, Riverside Park, Central Park. Uh, so all, uh, ironically, all the parks in the New York metro area, area, for the most part, be negatively impacted. Prospect Park, Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, uh, I already said Riverside and Central Park. You have Brooklyn Bridge Park, Battery Park, Governor's Island, Liberty State Park on the Jersey side. The whole walkway on the Hudson side in New Jersey, going all the way up. We would like to enjoy our parks and not not be listening to helicopters all day long
1: we know that that if we do nothing we know what the outcome is going to be
2: i'm alan winston with my co-host rebecca mckean and you are listening to bar crawl radio podcast it's 2023 and june's just started we are at the west side community garden and in the background you can hear jazz saxophonist Jeff Burke prepping for tonight's performance featuring a mix of classic jazz and hip-hop.
3: But before we hear from Mr. Burke and listen to selections of this evening's performance, we will be talking about a particular noise problem in our Upper West Side neighborhood with two leaders from Stop the Chop, an organization working to ban non-essential helicopter flights over New York City. Ken Coughlin has been an Upper West Side activist for more than 30 years. As a leader of transportation alternatives, Ken was key in removing car traffic from Central Park and until recently was on the TA board. Ken is a founding board member of Streets Pack and as a member of Community Board 7, Ken has played a leading role in securing board support for protected bike lanes and other street safety improvements on the Upper West Side.
2: Melissa Elstein was a professional ballerina and non practicing attorney and has been a volunteer community organizer for 20 years. This Upper West Sider co founded the West 80s Neighborhood Association.
3: And Ken and Melissa are here today as leaders of the Stop the Chop Initiative, which works to organize the community, businesses, and local politicians to ban non-essential helicopters invading the space over our heads.
2: So thank you very much, uh, Ken and Melissa, for joining us. Uh, um, I've been looking into this, getting ready for this podcast, and this is a big deal. I mean there's a lot of people that are affected by this
3: thank
0: you for having us here
3: tonight sure i mean i have to say i was saying to alan i said well you know can't they just fly over the waterways and then i remembered while i'm sitting listening to the the shakespeare and riverside park how often we are interrupted by the sound of the helicopters, and they are probably flying over the water at that point. So that that was very silly of me.
0: Well, you know, a lot of people will say that, including, you know, the FAA. Well, they're flying over water, so it's okay. And and that's just not the case. I mean, the Hudson River right now sounds like a helicopter highway. Um, as the helicopters go up and down, whether it's tourist helicopters, which are the sightseeing ones, or commuters. So over water is not a solution. Um, my apartment faces the Hudson River, and I can hear the helicopters before I even see them. And so we do have a lot of members that live along both sides of the Hudson River, New Jersey and New York City, as well as in you know, Brooklyn Heights, they get it, um, the Battery, the Seaport. All. I mean, you think about all the communities that are along waterways, and including the New York Harbor, it's a lot of people being impacted negatively. Yeah, I just
2: started talking to people about it. I didn't, I didn't, I said, what's the big deal? But then I started hearing them all the friggin' time. (laughs) Once
1: once you start hearing them, you cannot unhear them. Yeah, Yeah. sure. The biggest misconception we face is people think uh, they're just uh, official helicopters, like police and search and rescue and things like that. Um, so when people do hear them, they think, oh, well, you know, it's necessary. Well, 99 times out of 100, it's not necessary. Right, right. So
3: what was the inciting moment that led you to get involved in this work of getting rid of these horrible machines?
0: So basically in the summer of 2019, My husband and I started noticing a lot of helicopters hovering around the Jackie O Reservoir and the jogging path. We were both jogging and they were they were hovering the way Alan, you mentioned today. And like Ken said, at first I thought and we both thought, oh, it's search and rescue. Did, Did a child drown in the reservoir? You know, we just didn't understand it. And then there were like two or three hovering and circling at a time. And then we started to realize, wait, this is probably something else. So we started Googling and realized these were actually tourist sightseeing helicopters, the ones um, that we were seeing at that that time and that continue to fly. Those are the fly-nigh-on ones from New Jersey that are the doors-off shoe selfie, if you can believe it. People dangle their legs. And then uh, I started noticing more and more going up and down the Hudson, which we then realized were commuters and sightseeing, both New Jersey and the New York City-based ones. So... Because I had been doing community work on the Upper West Side at that point for about 20 years, started organizing some meetings at Community Board 7 with the local electeds and the community board, and then lo and behold, there was a, a crash into the Equitable Building in the Times Square area, and after that, that's when Congress members Nadler, Maloney, and Velasquez introduced their first federal bill that would, would basically have passed, would, would ban these non-essentials, that's what the language they use and we use, the sightseeing and the commuter. Uh, from over uh, basically a city like New York City. So that's when um, we decided let's let's resurrect the old Stop the Chop. There had been a first iteration of this organization where a 501c3 and we met with the first board or members of the first board and we decided, yes, let's resurrect it. They had pretty much gone dormant after the 2016 Mayor de Blasio and Industry Compromise, we call it, 2016 compromise that reduced the New York City based sightseeing helicopters by 50%, banned the overland flights and banned the Sunday flights. So it was, you know, somewhat of a win and that board basically, you know, got a little burnt out from the two years of community work that they were doing. And so that's how I got involved. And we've been working through, you know, the pandemic and then the shutdown. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, things are, are back in full force because complaints have just increased dramatically. Numbers, are the numbers growing now? In the So back, you know, when, when the original board had formed, there 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 was no Fly Nyon Company, for example, so that's that's the one that's based in Kearney, New Jersey, what I mentioned, the Doors Off Shoe Selfie. That really did not exist. Also, Blade, which is a commuter-based company, didn't exist.
2: And that's the one that flies out of the um, uh, Riverside Park, uh, 30th Street, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, Hudson River Park. Uh, Hudson River Park. As right. well as, so that's West 30th Street, correct? And then there's also, they fly out of East 34th Street, and they fly to the airports, the major airports, as well as to the Hamptons and other destinations. So, you know, that's a very big difference in the in the landscape.
3: And I understand even in the Hamptons they're trying to get the the adopters to stop.
0: So there's been a twenty year battle to close the East Hampton airport, both for the because of the helicopter traffic and the private jet traffic, and they're possibly close to doing it. Um, right now, uh, there's a, a temporary restraining order that's been issued, so nothing's happening, but it remains to be seen. It, it looks like there's been movement and there's a lawsuit. So that would basically prevent, if that, if that wins, if, they, if East Hampton Town Board closes it down, that would prevent the Blade and other commuters from landing there. They could still land at Montauk Airport or, let's say, West Hampton. Uh, and other, you know, other locations on Long Island. So,
3: who 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 is it that takes uses these helicopters? Who these non-essential helicopters?
1: Uh, well, there are two kinds of people: um, the very wealthy who want to get to the airport in ten minutes and are willing to pay hundreds and hundreds uh, of dollars to do that. Um, those are the commuter helicopters, and then there are the tourist helicopters where as Melissa said, people want to take pictures of their feet dangling over Central Park, and and that costs hundreds of dollars also, but they're not doing that on a regular basis, but they're thrill-seeking. So the question is why should we on the Upper West Side and in the rest of the New York region be subjected to people's uh, desire for thrill-seeking or uh, their need to get to the airport as quick much more quickly than any other mortal
0: well it, it turns out ironically that it, it ends up not being that much faster to the to the airports because there have been some like youtube challenge challenges and some newspaper challenges and by by the time you actually take a car service all the way to the hudson river and west 30th street if you're going from that one um with traffic and everything and uh that it's not ironically that much faster than taking
3: you know public transportation
2: yeah i mean i i take the bus to LaGuardia. it's not not a problem at all i would
3: suggest that i'm sure public transportation is the fastest way to get to the the airports so but you know when you think about the environmental footprint
0: you know if you're taking like an suv I don't don't think most of the people are taking an electric car, right? They're taking an SUV, going all the way over to the the Hudson and the West 30th Street, and then you're taking an extremely polluting helicopter. You know, forget about the noise even. They just use jet fuel. Some use leaded fuel. Not all of them, but some. And, you know, what is the difference between even taking... You know a regular car service so you know there's that in addition to the noise pollution
2: yeah before we get to the to the the fact that this thing is really dirty these these machines i just want to state that when i started thinking about this you've got maybe four people in a helicopter who are flying over my apartment and disturbing not just me but thousands and thousands of other people that are sitting and trying to do their work i have my Studio right in my office, and I have to stop. And and it's not just me; it's thousands of other people because these four people above my head want to see what it looks like from 100, 200, 300 feet above. It's not fair. It's not right. And,
0: Do you want to be our spokesperson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: we're, we're we're trying here to, to You're help hired. you get the word out. You, you, know. you just
1: did our ad for us. So.
2: Yeah.
0: No, it's very unfair. Very unfair, and you know just like a lot of other environmental battles we ultimately the taxpayers are paying for the externalities the companies aren't the individuals that are flying especially if they're tourists um, are not and so we're paying and uh, you know so there, it's interesting because there is a a New York State bill uh, by Brooklyn Assemblymember Bobby Carroll that was introduced this year and it would change the tax law basically to impose a tax fee on the carbon cost uh, per ride and also include uh, a noise fee which is very interesting so you know we support that
3: how are these machines really dirty what how bad is a helicopter for the environment
0: well we have a really lengthy page on our website under the about section that's the environmental and health section so we have a lot of studies um, on both the topics, the health as well as the environment, and you know it depends on the actual helicopter. Some are larger, right? You have the Sikorskis versus the Bells, but you know it could be anywhere from you know compared to the amount of fuel a car takes, it could be twenty times, forty times. Um, the other thing to consider is that none of these helicopters are based. In Manhattan, so we have just to give the landscape real quickly, and just in Manhattan, south of East 34th Street, we have three heliports. There used to be a fourth. Mayor Giuliani closed the East 60th Street one in 1997. So since they're not even based here, it means that for every ride of a customer, you also have a ride with no one in the helicopter arriving and then at the end of the day leaving. So you've got to include that, which is you know additional. Uh, problems for the environment
2: so every time i ride my bike by the uh that hudson park um heliport and i smell jet fuel i was just i'm I'm breathing in jet fuel yes yes and
1: depending on which way the wind's blowing it's blowing as you're blowing right into your lungs and you're exercising at close to peak capacity. Right, well. and it's right there.
2: I mean, it's right next to you yeah. as you ride your bike yeah. or you run or you jog.
1: Yeah. In a In a uh, state park.
2: It's uh, mad And near a
3: residential area. I mean, do you hear from those people in that area? Yes, we have some pretty
0: active activists in that area, which is the Community Board 4 area. And there are some um, bills that were introduced recently... By State Senator um, Brad Hoyleman Siegel, as well as in the Assembly by Tony Simone, and that you know, their their companion bill would basically remove the heliport from that state park, and so it would amend the Hudson River Park Trust Act.
2: Okay, all right. Um, you, you you mentioned also that these helicopters are not safe. You, there was there's been crashes, yes. uh, and you, and you mentioned one, uh, people. Hanging their feet off the side of the—is that allowed? I mean, it's that sounds so friggin' dangerous. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, only, not, not only for the people doing that, but what if their shoe falls off yes, or something? Or, or yes. their phone? Or their phone falls out of their—I yep. mean, it falls out of my pocket all the well, time. Well,
0: that com- that company and and they're not—you know—they're not the only problem. But let's talk about them th- at this moment since you asked. There was a horrific fatal crash. In the uh, summer of 2018 where they started losing power as they were flying over Central Park this one helicopter doors off etc and the helicopter ended up going past Central Park over the Upper East Side crashed into the East River five tourists drowned and died because they could not extricate themselves from their harnesses because you have to be harnessed in so that you don't fall out the open doors. The pilot saved himself Um, and as a result of that the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, has made recommendations to the FAA to close this loophole that the industry has been allowed to fly under, and not all of them, the New York City sightseeing helicopters are not doors off. And the FAA, however, has not closed the loophole. So the doors off helicopters are really for professionals. It's like if you're filming a movie, it was never meant for the layperson. It was never create. it was actually create. you know, social media didn't exist when this part was allowed. So we're hoping that the FAA will finally listen
3: to the NTSB and close that loophole and ban these. So the, these these helicopters are really even more expensive than the cost that the customer pays. It's the cost of the carbon footprint. It's the cost of the, of the danger and the pollution. Yeah,
2: and, and who's paying for that?
3: I mean, that's a we pretty are. great cost. We are,
2: we are, yeah. You know, yeah people yeah.
1: all over the world.
2: Uh, Jeff Burke, who's playing in the background with DJ Johnny Juice. Um, He had something to say about trying to produce in his apartment um, while the helicopters are flying over. Let's hear what he had to say.
4: It's the worst, man. Well, this is related to everything, the COVID, like what a lot of musicians, myself included, you know, like we started migrating to home recording more, you know, you know, like um, you had to to stay on pace with the, the, the industry. You had to learn to record from home. Um, you had to. We had to upgrade our, our knowledge. You know, of, if I hadn't learned to engineer from home, I, it, I would have lost that opportunity. So, these helicopters, I'm trying to record, and I, you know, it, you constantly. I hear it's, it's just like when one fades away, here comes another. And it's just, it, 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 it impacts a take if I'm trying to record, you know, and I can close the windows. I just don't get it, man. I, I feel like, if, is this really necessary? Like, I don't know who, if it just tours, as you said, or are people commuting? Like, I, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I, I, it, I, I'm very sensitive to it, just the noise level.
3: Okay. How loud are the helicopters? And what is the effect on our neighborhoods, on our neighbor's health? It depends, first of all, on how
0: low they're flying. But just so you're aware, New York City is a, in the metropolitan area, is a unique airspace. So, one of the few regulations that actually, ironically, exist that doesn't help the residents of New York City is that the helicopters have to fly below 2,000 feet so they don't interfere with the international and national jet traffic. So, it keeps them low. Um, now, you know, some of them we've like taken videos, we can track the helicopter's height also through various apps. I like to um, point out that your listeners can download free apps such as Flight Radar 24 and ADSB Exchange. And once they have the app, you can see the height and the uh, direction of the helicopters, what type of helicopter. Most, most of the time it's the tail number, and you can get more information that way. But, you know, I mean, helicopters are extremely loud. We all know that. Um, they have a unique sound as well. We have articles about that on our website because of the, um, the, the propellers and the, the, the rotors uh, have a different sound even than jets. You know, it's that chop, chop, chop. And they, they've been shown to have a low vibration, which is also kind of uniquely uh, troubling to the human ear
1: and it's particularly bad when they turn the, the tour when the helicopter tourist helicopters turn over Central Park it, for some reason it gets increasingly loud at that point
0: yeah and they turn on the Hudson River there so the New York City based ones that are at the downtown Manhattan heliport I spoke about that earlier the, the 2016 agreement so there's 30,000 of that flights allowed each year from that heliport and they they will turn at different points along the Hudson. Um, there's like three choices of where people could tour. And yeah, and and Ken, you live near Central Park, so it's, you'll hear sometimes three at a time circling around the Last night,
1: they love to do the sunset tours. And so last night there were three simultaneously over Central Park.
2: Uh, this is really uh, an issue of uh, rich against the poor and that, that poor communities are really suffering from this. Um, could you talk about that, about the effect on, uh, on our poorer communities in New York City?
0: Yeah, so obviously it depends on which flights you're talking about. Um, it, it, it does impact all communities, right? But in one area in particular, as the commuter helicopters are going towards JFK or the Hamptons, they take a route that does go over environmental justice communities. And we've we've mapped that um, by following the helicopters and then overlaying it, you know, in some of these Brooklyn neighborhoods. Um, you know also some neighborhoods in Queens as well so we we have a uh, document a report just on that very issue
2: right really interesting this seems to be a very powerful industry this helicopter industry uh, who first the first question is who are these people if you if you have that information and two why is it so difficult to get them out of my park you
1: know, the, uh, the number of bills is a testament to how much pressure uh, the the politicians at the city state and federal level are getting about this the problem is the bills are not getting traction um, they're being introduced but like 551 in the city um, which is really the best bill has yet to get a hearing even though it has 25 co-sponsors um, we're See, told- that's what I
2: don't get is there seems to be such a strong effort to get this through politically policy wise and it doesn't seem to get traction yet. But you've had this problem in getting rid of cars in the park, right. and I'm sure you faced similar kind of like right, right, well, Yes, you know.
1: and what worked with Central Park was it was incremental, over you know 25, 30 years, uh, um, very incremental, and and that may end up being the case here. Um, you know, I led the campaign to get cars out of Central Park for 20, almost 25 years. You know. Every, back in like 1996, I thought, well, you know, this will take maybe two or three years. And, it, you know, it was still 2018. Um, and it's very, very hard to change the status quo. Do not underestimate how, how hard it is. And also to take a privilege away from people, in the case of Central Park drivers who had access to the loop road, to take a privilege away, to take a privilege away from wealthy people who can fly above us all,
2: I think our listeners now um, realize there's a problem and are going to start hearing this more and more and realize this is something that's in our ears. We want to uh, uh, thank Melissa Elstein and Ken Coglin of Stop the Chop for joining us here on Bar Crawl Radio, recording at the Westside Community Garden. And to learn more about this problem in our city of non-essential helicopters, be sure to listen to a podcast they did a little while ago called soundproofist.com. Uh, with uh, Melissa, Andy Rosenthal, and Adrian Benepe, um, or go to the Stop the Chop website. And uh, we'll be back in a second and introduce uh, the concert for this evening with uh, Jeff Burke and DJ Johnny Juice with Andrew Fisher Piano and Kaylin Bryant Bass. And thank you very much, Ken. you Kof- And Melissa Elstein for... Sitting down with us and talking about this very important problem. Thank in our you so
0: much for for your time, for your interest, and your compassion. <laughs> in that vein, Juice, you got a beat you can drop for us. <laughs> yeah, all right. This comes from New Orleans. This is like we call a second line street beat. So yeah. we
2: Saxophonist Jeff Burke has performed with Harry Connick Jr., the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, the Artie Shaw Orchestra, and many others. He has performed alongside Gloria Gaynor, Gladys Knight, Leslie Odom Jr., Billy Ray Cyrus, Marilyn May, and quite a few others. Jeff moved to New York City in 1999 and has been an Upper West Side resident for the past 20 years as well as a proud dog owner of Doxy, whom he rescued from the SBCA in Philadelphia a little while ago. A couple of days before the concert, I called up Jeff to see how he was doing and to ask about his approach to the Westside Community Garden concert. He told me that the pandemic opened his thinking and led him to a musical idea that he's been exploring, synthesizing classic hip-hop and jazz. (laughs) ¶¶ Hey man, good to see you. You too. Yeah. My my, my first question sir is um how's Doxie?
4: Doxie's doing well. She's um she's 14 now. Yeah. And uh, she's 14. She's my a little, goodness. she's 14. She's yeah. a little she's a little sick. I got her on some pills. Um But you know, she's she's lived a good life and uh, yeah. but she's hanging in there. She's, yeah.
2: she's Doxie kind of sounds like me. I'm um, <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm hanging in there, you know, <laughs> doing the best we I just, can. Yeah,
4: Yeah. well, you know, my grandmother said old age isn't kind. You know, that was her expression.
2: So um, yeah, So it, it was a little while ago that we saw you. How, how did COVID hit your profession and your career?
4: It opened a lot of doors in a sense that, and I don't think I'm alone in this sense, that people yeah. had a chance to kind of just kind of stop and pause and and. and Decide well what do I, what's next or what what does I want to do? You know we had we had a moment of reflection there, which I think was good. So and then people handled it different ways, you know.
2: Um, so what did you what did you come up with? What did what did you realize? Well, I mean,
4: I think it's it's going to be uh, on display this week. I mean, I'm I'm really excited about this concert because it's something I've been wanting to do for years. I mean, really twenty years. I mean, if I'm being honest, but I just didn't have the there were a lot of things I, I wasn't sure how to do, it. and it's been a slow, very slow process. And what we're doing is we're working with a live DJ in lieu of drums. Okay, let's talk, like,
2: let's talk about this uh, this week's concert yeah. at the Westside Community Garden.
4: I think it's all related because I COVID's where I said, let me really try and figure out how to work this idea of a group I've been wanting to do forever. And basically what happened was, I mean, it relates to the Westside. I, I was... I was walking Doxy, of course, in the um, Dog Run 87. And I met a, uh, a fellow dog owner, uh, Raj, who, who owns a club called RPM Underground. And it's um, it's on 54th. It's it's next to the old Studio 54. And it's, it's this really cool karaoke bar I didn't know anything about. But I explained to Raj that I was a musician. And he said, well, we're looking for, you know. And, and keep in mind, this is like, this was the early spring of 21, like the vaccines were just starting to roll out for, mm-hmm. you know, the frontline workers. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't even available to most people. Everything was still shut down. So he had this club and he goes, well, we want to think about presenting music at some point. And I said, wow, well, this is maybe an opportunity for me to workshop this idea. So he said, you know, you, you're my space is yours, which is incredible because he, I mean, it's a massive. It's a great club. If anyone is loves karaoke, I recommend it to get down there.
2: And the name of the um, club is RPM. It's called
4: R- RPM Underground. There's actually uh, on the ground floor, on the street level, is a uh, it's a, a record store actually. But when you go downstairs, it's it's uh, they did a great job of of creating these you know private karaoke rooms and. Um, there's all this old, like if you're an audiophile, they got all this old equipment scattered around, like uh, Morant's um, amps. I mean, it's really cool just to, to check it out. So Raj invites me, says, Man, like, and again, it's COVID, peak COVID. No one was quite sure when things would reopen at that point. Nope. And the studios, I don't think were even open to practice, but I said, Man, this is a free space. Like, this is valuable. Like, New York, you're paying upwards of 40, 50 bucks an hour just to rehearse somewhere, you know, and make noise. But I also thought it was a good idea because we were going to not only rehearse there, but ultimately try and premiere this this project there so we could see how it sounded in the space. But the only thing is I didn't have a band, you know, (laughs) what I did have, what I did have was were these like demos I've been I work with a software called Logic. And like I said, it's been slowly I've been trying to learn how to be a producer and and deal with uh, basically hip hop tracks, you know, like drum tracks and stuff and and figure out how to implement that into some of the jazz canon, which I like, you know, jazz melodies. I was learning on my own from home, and I had built up these arrangements, but I didn't quite know how to pull it off live. I did some research, but I said, like, I would really love to have a DJ, someone back there really triggering, you know, a a member of the band, in other words. Like, I didn't just want someone on a laptop. I wanted someone who was interacting as a band member would.
2: Like scratching records and stuff? Yeah,
4: scratching and cueing. And I wanted something organic. I didn't want to be just playing the tracks. So I wanted something that would function like a drummer, you know? Wow.
2: I am so, so looking forward to this now.
4: Oh, it's going to be cool, man. I cannot wait because it's it's been so much work. So my only lead, there was this group called The Odyssey that I knew the bass player, KJ. He's a great guy, great bass player. And I had met him through a mutual musician friend. And I just... You know, I cold called KJ, I only played with him once. His partner in this group is a guy, DJ Johnny Juice, you know, and and Juice um, came up with Chuck D and was a member of Public Enemy and the, the Bomb Squad, they were called, the production team. And I mean, he just came up in what I consider the golden age of hip hop. And, you know, he's a New Yorker. He just knows all those guys, like all the guys he knows personally. And I said, KJ, how would you feel about the Odyssey collaborating with me? And I explained my idea. And he goes you know i'll run it by juice and see what he thinks and and he called me back said juice is on board man and i was like oh my god like this could actually happen now and i was so nervous to call juice the first time because he's the guy he's like the the engine that makes this whole thing run you know i had to talk to him and explain well how are we gonna get these drum tracks how are we gonna figure out how to make these songs work and okay just like well just call him he'll tell you the best way to do it and so i called him and i was freaking nervous you know, but he was so sweet to me and a nice guy and very patient. And I ended up going to his apartment and um, we met a couple times. And he just—I mean—he's a genius at just production. And and he taught me. I mean, he's just so fast putting together these tracks because I had kind of skeletons at home. But he—he he knows the proper way to do everything. And so we kind of put together a little set, and then we end up doing three. I think we did three shows at RPM in the summer, late summer of 21. We just hit it. Like, I didn't know if it was going to be good or bad. I didn't know how it would be received. And, and basically, my friends showed up, you know. And then I went on tour, so I was away from town. And then the end of 21, we ended up finding another venue called The Vault, which is down by um, Chelsea Market down there in meatpacking area. Mm-hmm. And we ended up doing about three or four more shows. The cool thing is one of those shows, Ben Harper shows up who's a huge indie artist. I mean, he's like massive, you know. Mm
2: -hmm. Just a quick, uh, by the way, in case any of you who don't know Ben Harper, and I had to look this up because I didn't know Ben Harper. He is a three-time Grammy Award winner and a seven-time nominee with awards for Best Pop Instrumental Performance and Best Traditional Soul Gospel Album in 2004 and Best Blues Album in 2013. At the 40th, Blues Music Awards Ceremony, Harper's joint composition with Charlie Musselwhite, No Mercy in This Land, was named Song of the Year. So that's Ben Harper.
4: And Ben just, like, he loved it. I was like, holy cow. He stayed the whole time. And he was there because my high school friend was his, like, this is crazy, was his acting coach in some, I don't know, upcoming (laughs) series. I don't know what the series is, but. My friend Brad's like, oh, I might bring Ben Harper by tonight. And I was like, yeah, sure you will, you know. Uh, but just in case I had a song ready that if he wanted to sit in, I had something on cue just in case. And I'm glad I did because he showed up and he stayed the whole night and he ended up singing one of his songs. And then like, a, I don't know, two weeks later, I get a phone call. It's Ben. He's like, hey, do you want to play on my new record? You know, which he goes, I want you and Juice to, to be on a track. So the track came out, the record came out last year, it got a Grammy nomination and uh, it didn't win unfortunately, but it kind of validated that what I was trying to put together had some legs, you know, like, cause it it seemed, it still seems kind of like, cause no one's really doing this. No one's, most of the time you see DJs and bands, they're accessories to a live drummer. You know, there's always Mm -hmm. a drummer who's keeping it down and the, the DJ generally adds on some scratching or whatever. I didn't want that. I wanted the actual DJ to be triggering the drum tracks and interacting like a band member, you know. That's what the concept of this is. You know, where, where
2: does to... the jazz come in?
4: Well, all right, I'll explain basically. Let me give you a good example. So all the songs are jazz heads. We start with the John Coltrane number called Lonnie's Lament. But what's really interesting about it is the, the groove, the drum groove you're hearing is from... One of my favorite hip hop tracks of all time called uh, They Reminisce Over You by Pete Rock and CL Smooth. as a band leader and arrangers, I'm trying to find ways to seamlessly connect jazz melodies with existing established, like hooks from hip hop that I think will function simultaneously. The more interesting stuff for me is when we kind of create these, uh, I guess you'd call them a mashup or something. Like, mm-hmm. like we there's one song we, we go from a tribe called Quests, very famous track of theirs into a Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Konama, which is, for some reason, they just fit like like butter, you know. I don't know why. It's just, man, <laughs> this could, this could be the same song, you know. So and, that's what's fun and, for me. No one else is start. doing
2: this. No one else is doing this as far as you know.
4: No one's doing it, man. And and no one's not only they're not doing this, they're just not using I don't hear many DJ groups. Like this is a, I wanted a hybrid group where we could go into some of the clubs where it's strictly just DJs cuz DJs have so many more venues they can play than live bands, honestly. And I would like to be able to approach a club owner and say, "Look, you know, this is we have the DJ cuz they have all the DJ booths already set up." they have all the sound wire, they have state-of-the-art equipment, but I'm like, you know, how much more would it be to bring more, like three more people, bring a sax, keys, and bass, you know? And you'll have this kind of quasi hybrid live band, but DJ, you know? You still get that DJ sensibility with with some live instruments. And we're not just jamming, like we're playing like real arrangements, you know? You go to clubs, you'll see a sax player just jump in with a DJ and just, just noodle. But that to me is not that interesting. It's cool. You know, I got hired to do that on New Year's. I played, you know, a lot of New Year's parties. They want sax player to run around while the DJ play, and it's it's fun. Like, don't get me wrong. It's it keeps it more like engaging. But we want, I want the DJ to be embedded in the arrangement that the musicians are involved in, right. not you, just an accessory. You want a
2: true synthesis of. of I want a synthesis, you know,
4: and so. But it's like a tightrope, man. Like I'm very nervous because, like. Uh, you know, a lot of things can go wrong, but that's kind of the fun part of the medium is, like, you know, is, are we all triggering the same cue? Are we all in the same place? You know, and and it's just yeah. there's a certain energy there. It's like, oh, I hope we're all together in this, you know. Um,
2: you, Jeff, I, you sound a little nervous.
4: I'm a little nervous, but I'm also so excited because I don't think people are going to know, have heard anything like this before. And I want it to be a block party. You know, I want it to feel like circa late 70s when People were first coming out in the streets and, and having parties and and just the whole community aspect. I, I think it'll be really fun. Right. I, I... So that's kind of um, what COVID spawned for me was just kind of the commitment to figuring out how to get these tracks off my computer and into the real world, you know.
2: Got
0: you stuck, got you surrounded, surrounded,
2: surrounded, surrounded. After the concert, I got in touch with Jeff Burke and asked him how he thought it went.
4: Well, first, I just wanted to—I just thought everyone did a great job, and I just want to say how thankful and grateful I am to Juice and, and Andrew and Kaylin for um, putting this together on really short you know, amount of rehearsal time. Like we didn't have a ton of time, and and I threw a lot of new music at them there were about four or five new songs and I thought everyone did this a great job. And the thing is like my initial reaction, like I always want things to be perfect. And when I left the stage that day, I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't know. You know, there were a couple glitches, which I expected. And I, you know, including me, I, I screwed some things up, but now that I'm, you know, some, some folks are sending me some clips and I'm hearing things online and uh, I'm just really proud of what we did. I think it sounded great, you know, and, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just glad that we went ahead and, and um, decided to present this because it was ambitious, but you know, it, it, I think the message got across. So I'm, I'm really happy about that.
2: Where, where are you going with this now?
4: Um, so I was talking to uh, Juice and we, we were kind of um, floating the idea of doing like a digital 45, which would be basically like, you know, an a and a B side recording. So it uh, almost like a single, but, but two, two recordings. And, um, I think we would do a, a cover and an original and he would help me produce it. And, uh, that's something I really, cause we don't, I don't have any recorded music out with this group, you know, like everything's been live and, um, this would be the next step. I think logical step would be to get something people can actually access and, and online and listen to.
2: Right. I look forward to that. You let, you Thank let, you, you. You let, you let, you let us know when it's coming out. I will. Absolutely. All right. All right. I was curious about what DJ Johnny Juice and the young rapper, whose name I could not remember, said about the performance. And Jeff got into his thoughts about the aging rap artist.
4: Yeah, that that was Milo, who was uh, part of Leaders of the New School. And they were, you know, one of the influential um, hip hop bands, early 90s. Buster Rhymes was part of that group and uh, Charlie Brown. And and juice is, you know, Juice knows everybody. So I, I was just extremely grateful he uh Milo came out and, and he just did a great job coming in and, and freestyling. And the thing is, you know, like Milo's part of that generation. They were really instrumental in laying the groundwork for the, the hip hop artists today, you know, like Kendrick Lamar, like all these guys I think owe it to what these guys did in the early nineties. And I almost it reminds me of uh when I first moved to New York and and I started playing with older musicians and and The other kind of, um, you know, this industry has a way of being a little more, you know, they kind of forget about the, 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 the guys that, that, you know, came before us. And it's, it's important to remember that they're, they're still out here. They were part of that movement. And, um, and the thing is like, there's no really support groups for, especially jazz musicians with pensions and, you know, any kind of financial stability, As you get older, they're still hustling, you know, like, and, and I'm starting to feel that in my late forties, you know, or mid forties, like it's we're constantly having to work. And, and, uh, but uh, in terms of Milo, I, um, I I was really proud that we had this kind of generational span in the band because Caitlin's, I think only 22 and, and Andrew's in his thirties. I'm in my forties, um, juice and and, uh, Milo, I believe are are in their, their fifties. And it just brought this really cool, like communal aspect and, and, and sharing of experiences. Um, and it's it's kind of how I envisioned it. And, and uh, I, I thought it came out really well. And um, again, I, I just, I'm grateful he came out and, um, and participated and, and shared his, his talents with us.
2: I don't see any reason why an older rap artist can't be renewing the industry as you're trying to do um, with, uh, with this uh, synthesis of jazz and hip hop and, and DJs. It's, uh, it's an exciting uh, new moment.
4: Well, I hope we get to do it more. You know, I um, because I think that vocal element is really adds so much. You know, because the instrumental it's it dominates obviously what the group is about. But to have an experienced MC come in who who really knows how to work a crowd and, and Juice is amazing on the mic too. But I thought it just really lifted it, and that's kind of when I was thinking about the arc of that show on Sunday. I really, you know, I wanted Milo to be kind of the surprise guest who just kind of elevated things. And, uh, you know, listening back, I, I, I think it did add that element, you know, um, it's always hard in the moment to gauge how the crowd is responding and especially, you know, where I was standing, um, I wasn't getting the full house mix of the sound. So I'm hearing just really a stage mix, which is you know vastly different from what the audience hears. But I, I tell you, man, I can't tell you how excited I was to hear kind of the, um, the house mix. To see how the because of the vocal was very present, everything seemed to mix well. And that, that's what really encouraged me about moving forward with this.
2: In that last cut, when 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 the voice came in, it yeah, was yeah, it yeah. was so friggin' exciting. It really was. I'd never heard anything like
1: it.
0: Man,
2: that's cool. I I would love to do it again with him if he's yeah. um if he's into it. And we'll go out with this podcast with some of that cut. And thank you, uh, Jeff Berg, so much for sharing all this with us. This is uh, very exciting to talk to the uh, the artist after the performance.
4: I'm gonna, Thanks again, I'm, Al, I'm gonna have to do that the, more. Okay, you're the best, man.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Talk to you later.
1: Bye.
0: <laughs> like a girl said locks maintain the rock don't stop the rock maintain the rock don't stop the rock kick it right in our head once it dies a good rock long of a famous fair yo joke before we end the clear yo joke so we end the clear sax them up now sax them up now sax them up now come on 50 years of hip hop what you care for? 50 years